Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'm Bill and with... I'm Anne. I'm Anne. (laughs) (laughs) And with co-host Bill, I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we discuss one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. This afternoon, I'd like to welcome Ray to the studio. Hi, Ray. Hi, Anne. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, Ray is a member of Al-Anon Family Groups and today is going to share his story about recovery from the effects of being close to someone um, suffering from the disease of alcoholism. Uh, so, Ray, um, I know that you've, um, it's not just one person that you've been close to suffering from the disease of alcoholism, um, and you'll let us know all about that as we go. Uh, but just to start off your story, just start, just start at the beginning and, and tell us where you grew up. Uh, yeah, right. Um, I grew up in Funky Town, which is um, a pretty common way of referring to Frankston now. <laughs> Um, I was a teenager. I was a. I was uh, in my infancy there in the fifties, but I was a teenager there in the sixties, which was quite a um, a hot spot. It was like a frontier town then. It's not the Frankston that it is now. It was very a very wild, out of control place. Um, it was a good hour and a half to get to Melbourne at that time, and um, it was pretty lawless a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you have any difficulties with problem drinkers or drug users back at, at that point in your, well, either in your child, early childhood or in your uh, teenage years? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, every everywhere you went was just a wash with alcohol, mm-hmm. and that was just uh, part of the conservative mainstream. Um. You know, Australia's drinking culture, mm-hmm. it's just normal for alcohol to appear everywhere. But I, I lived in a street with um, a lot of people who were uh, pillars of the society. There were at least, I think, five doctors when I was a kid in my street. And um, several of those I came later to realise were alcoholics. They definitely had a drinking problem. There would be massive piles of of spirit bottles and wine bottles outside their houses, but they were always drunk. They were always um, completely sloshed during the day. So I got to see that a lot as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether you want me to talk about my own family yet, but yeah, um, I do. Yeah, well, even you know, in yeah, your in your own my, house, how was it impacting my, on you? Yeah, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, also lived um, in Frankston, and he was a nips drinker. He had long neck. Um, beer bottles in his shed, which he hid from the family. The grandmother was a very tall woman, six foot one, but she was a religious fanatic. She was very sort of righteous and, um, you know, fear of God. Had, everyone had that about her, but she really paid out on him about the alcohol. So my, my mother was, uh, 
I suppose, traumatised. There was, there was a lot of conflict there between her parents and there was this great need. Um, there were eight, eight, eight children in my mother's family. There was a great need amongst all of them to cover it up, hide it, sanitise it, you know, be perfect in everything you, that they did. So I got to witness that as a kid. But as a teenager, that's when it really broke open for me. Um, that was the beginning of the sort of uh, 60s revolution, if you like. So there was a lot of drug culture, uh, marijuana, speed, and acid. Acid was the big new um, designer drug of the era. And it was very much aligned with the music, the rock culture, you know, the art um, Andy Warhol, all that sort of thinking was uh, the, the revolution of the 60s. So Frankston was sort of feeding off all this drugs because there was so much alcohol in Frankston. You had a lot of people had arrived from the UK as migrants, as 10-pound poms. So there was a, a huge um, sector of Frankston were people who had who'd arrived with very little. Um, and, of course, a lot of them were alcoholics already when they before they got here. So their kids became... Um, disturbed and there was this drug culture that you could just plug into everywhere you went so hanging around the streets as a teenager and I became very uh, street wise from an early age I was on the streets at about 13 on a regular basis it became my more like my home than being at home mm. um, things at home were pretty unnatural I'll stop um, oh, as one of the um... Ten pound palms, yeah. We we came over with an alcoholic to Frankston's too, so <laughs> we've got something in common. Um, so just to take you back a little bit, how did you how did you cope with um, the this this feeling that you had in your family that everything had to be covered up that you that your mother seemed to have um, taken from her family? Did that impact on you at all as a child? Yeah, early days of it, I just thought we were good. I, I thought we were the good ones, you know, the, the special people. I had to be a good boy. I was only ever allowed to be a good boy. Um, there was never any naughtiness tolerated. Things had to be spotlessly clean. Um, I excelled at school. I was, I was ducks of the school. I was good at sport. I became head prefect. I went down that path of being perfect, but I was really just acting out. Um, I was, I'd become like the mascot of the family for everything that they were unable to fulfil in themselves because they'd, they'd, they'd sort of gated themselves. They'd, 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 they'd um, shut themselves down in order to hide what was happening in their, their family of origin. And, and so um, as the head prefect and, and uh, the ducks of the school, did that mean that you avoided the drug and alcohol culture? Um, there was a lot of... I skied around the poles. I was, I was very... Um, very cl- I got cunning. I got very clever at avoiding getting caught. And I can remember getting um, drunk myself um, on South Yarra Station at 14 with with school friends. And we'd get away with stuff like that. And, and I, I couldn't go into places like the pinball parlour in Frankston, which was a big no-no back then, because if a head prefect got seen in there, that would be um, totally, you know, that conflict of interest where you, you're doing one thing, and performing another way. That was a big part of my upbringing. But I was always drawn to all of this um, underworld, um, the dark side, 
all of the excitement of alcoholism and all the craziness around dance. There was a lot of great dances in, in Frankston Penny Lane and there was a great church dance at St Paul's and later they had um, Frankston High School had a great blue light disco. So there was this culture of being out. You were always out and everyone was drinking and drugging. And I was very, very much drawn to all these colourful people. And, and what do you think it was in you that was drawn to that? Uh, well, I've come, decades later, I've come to understand that um, half of me was completely repressed. I wasn't allowed to be myself. I wasn't allowed to be how I feel. Feelings were never um, allowed. To express feelings was seen as you'll look, look down your nose at giving side, given sideways glances. So I, I've, I've had to go through like a, a total um, reinvention of self over and over many times to become more integrated in my true nature, to find what I feel. Like, what do I really feel yep. about all of these things? And mm-hmm. to know that what I feel is not an opinion based on what someone else has said. It's what I feel. Yep. So I've, I've come to possess myself, if you like. Uh-huh. That's a good way of putting it. Um, okay, so you had a, a, a charmed sort of a, a ride through school. How did uh, tell me about your working life after you left school? Uh, well, actually, I, I ran off the rails um, pretty early. I, I decided that I wasn't happy in Frankston. I, I, I was very disturbed about the conflict between my upbringing and what was happening down the road. And I was more comfortable with what was happening down the road. Um, And I I detached progressively from my family. I I didn't like being at family functions. I stopped going altogether by about 16. I don't think I ever went to a family function after that. Mm -hmm. But um, at some point I decided that the solution was to hang around the streets. And then progressively I I realised I'm not happy here either. This is... This is a really unhealthy environment and I'm getting into trouble. Um, I'm confused. I feel disillusioned with everything. There's no options here. I can't see anything I really want to do. Um, I went surfing a bit. I played music in bands a bit, but I was still uh, empty. I felt very empty. So I ended up going to India when I was 20. Um, Had a near-death experience over there and came back um, very broken. And progressively, I, I became a naturopath after that, followed a path of um, trying to recover through various therapies, um, various careers, changed careers a lot. And I ended up doing a psych degree when I was 42. Um, and this is all before I got to Al-Anon, of course. But I was looking. I was, I was really a seeker of truth. I was trying to find the answer. I was trying to find how to... Um, feel whole and complete I, I wanted to solve I could see my family everyone in that family was empty no one was really happy everyone was fake everyone was screwed up everyone was either physically ill or mentally overly conservative and stiff everything was dysfunctional everywhere I went people were dysfunctional and unhappy um, and I just thought I don't want this this is not what I want I want better than this what is it so I was searching yeah, well, it's a real, it's a real uh, counterculture um, 
experience. You've just sort of summed up that whole era, haven't you? Um, can you talk about Absolutely. the um, what the, the the trauma was in India? Is that relevant? Um, yeah, it's a pretty. Uh, I had a very heavy physical confrontation. I mean, India in the early seventies is not like India today. It was virtually like stepping from Frankston into a feudal um, environment, very similar to what you can see in the Afghan um, war scenarios of the last 20 odd years. It was that type of environment and I couldn't find food. It was just very difficult to find anything to eat. And when you did, it was, it was polluted. Water was polluted. So I got very sick. I had several uh, ailments that were metabolically very confronting and um, I went from 14 stone to seven stone. So when I, when I crawled out of India, literally on my hands and knees, I was, um, I was very traumatized by that. I, I probably had um, some sort of brain seizure at one point. I couldn't, in India, I couldn't see for 10 days straight. And uh, I did a lot of vomiting, a lot of gastric, endless gastric problems. And I couldn't eat anything. There was no food I could eat. So that was a great trauma. So I had, I had culture shock. I was frightened for my life. And um, I didn't know whether I'd ever make it back to Australia. And I couldn't find food. Like to have not have any food at all and to know that you're starving to death was shocking, indescribable. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay, so then you became a psychologist. And um, what, what area did you find yourself working in? Um, I was very drawn to um, clinical psychology. I, I really liked, uh, and this is an interesting twist as well, I really liked one-to-one consultations. Um, I really enjoyed holding space for other people to feel safe so that they could express and be heard without interruptions, just to allow people to get things off their chest and the more I did that, the more I realised that I really enjoyed the intimacy of being in that, it's almost like a sacred space in a sense, of, of being close to someone who's a total stranger because um, they're not in my personal life, but hearing their deepest pain and, and what, what bothers them about their current adult life. So I, I became um, more and more interested in that. I went deeper into it. I did a lot of primal therapy which is very deep release work. Um, and I found that I was fascinated by subconscious issues where people have repressed mm-hmm. events from particularly childhood that get repressed because the family won't let you express how you really react. You, you know, you've got to perform in the tribe or you're um, going to be punished for not being um, what they want you to be, even though you might be hurting or struggling with something. You have to measure up and pull pull the toe the line. Mm. Yeah. So it opened a door. Yep. Okay. Um, we'll take a, a short break and uh, we'll come back and you can take us through the door. Okay. And Thank uh, you. So um, the song that we're going to play now is All Your Love uh, by Magic Sam.
have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown, but want to find them a loving home? We'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au. We love a good book. G'day, this is Jacob from the Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you, here on Community Radio 3CR. that last song was All Your Love uh, by Magic Sam. He's, he has experimental mix of blues, soul and rockabilly uh, out of Chicago from the late 60s. Uh, this is a Living Free Show on 3CR on 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Um, what else? Uh, if you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email, or Twitter. Uh, today, Anne is talking with Ray, and he's from Al-Anon Family Groups, and they're talking about recovery from the effects of problem drinking on their family and friends. Over to you, Anne. Welcome back, uh, everybody, and welcome back, Ray. Um, Ray, you were just speaking to us before about um, how you became a psychologist, um, and I'm interested to know um, uh, how that... I've spoken to you before and I know that that um, meant that you were dealing with a lot of uh, people who were traumatised. Could you talk to us a little bit about that now, please? Yeah, thanks, Anne. I I sort of gravitate... I have a nature that tends to gravitate towards things that that interest me, that I'm curious about, and and sort of trauma has always sort of come towards me like I've I've had a lot of people in my life that have had amazing events and they get this urge to tell me about them so in in a a professional role that was sort of um where I where I went I just went there naturally but I started to get people that had traumatic childhood issues and and that that was really good I was enjoying that for some years and I had a number of um platforms that I could um, access clients with and progressively I got to a stage where in one year I think I had seven or eight um, people come to see me repeatedly who were um, victors, victims of attempted attempted murder events and I found that fascinating. It was just amazing to sit with them and, and listen to the, the struggle they had um, in their day-to-day lives as a consequence of post-traumatic stress. And um, this led to, I mean, I I was talking to people in that capacity who had been to um, Port Arthur Massacre, had been shot at, had bullet holes in their car. I had uh, two people that were involved with the Wall Street uh, police killings, a couple of people from the Frankston serial killer 
dynamics that were traumatized by their uh, personal involvement with him um, and some others that were of, of less dramatic and famous historical significance. But out of all of that came one person who um, particularly was very disturbed and had a, a family background of extreme abuse, a, a woman who'd been severely um, sexually abused as a child by an older sibling and had a severe drug and alcohol problem. Um, and progressively, as that unfolded, she became obsessed with me and began to stalk me and inevitably um, destro destroyed my whole life, really, because I, I just was getting like 60 to 80 phone calls a day. It, it just shut down everything that was happening. My house was being broken into. I had the whole stalker, rock star stuff, um, and it, it just meant my life became unlivable. I'd already been to Al-Anon um, two years earlier prior to that, and I was just exploring all of the actual, um, you know, uh, modalities of all of these recovery um, fellowships, and there's a lot of them. There's a hell of a lot of different fellowships, as, as people know. But I, I'd been to Al-Anon, and it was nice, yada yada but suddenly i've got this very stressful situation and i can't deal with it nothing's working the victoria police weren't paying much attention for some time it took a year before i got full attention for the victoria police and then i had surveillance on my house i had a police car drive past my house every 15 minutes day and night i had um, police sitting out in the neighbor's gardens for two weeks there was just so much going on and it was all connected to other events um I don't want to go too far into the detail, but this person had connections to the Carmen Chan murder. She was connected to the Wall Street killings. There was a lot of very heavy energy there, and I was out of my depth, and I had to recognise that, and I didn't know how to cope. I had no no way of even talking to my own therapist. I couldn't release how much anxiety I was in. So I started going to these Al-Anon meetings that were just down the road on a Tuesday, Um and I'm sitting there in the back row. There were 35 people in the room and I didn't want to be recognised. I just sat there and meditated mainly with my eyes closed. And I was just listening. And I'm hearing all these gems and I'm hearing all these um, fresh ideas and ways to cope with the chaos of being around a problem drinker or drug taker. Um, and it slowly brought me back to sanity. I started to feel... There was hope for me that I was somehow going to get my life back, that I would be able to um, deal with what was happening. The anxiety was just soul-destroying. You know, I wasn't able to sleep properly. I couldn't digest food properly. I didn't know when I was going to have a rock through the window. I got, I got attacked in the street repeatedly. And this person got convicted on 508 counts, yep. you know, including attempt, attempted murder. Yep. So it, it was heavy, heavy days. Back to you, Anne. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're, uh, I'm going to, the next question is going to be about um, um, alcoholics and addicts that you actually have in your life at the moment. Um, but uh, we actually have got a small technical hitch in the studio and we're going to put a song on um, and we're going to sort that out and we'll see you back in about two minutes. By Yeah, so I'll see you then. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, we've got one coming up and I think we'll play Saddle Up by Lou Bennett and the Sweet Chick.
listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. This is a Living Free show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, we're talking to Ray today from Alanon Family Groups about recovery from the effects of uh, problem drinking uh, in in uh, people close to you. Um, so, Ray, welcome back. Before the music, there we were talking about uh, your uh, job as a psychologist and some uh, pretty heavy traumatic experiences that uh, you came to have towards the end of that career. Um, can you talk, uh, move now to talking a little bit about who the alcoholics and addicts are in your life today? Sure. Um, I'd, I'd, um, I'm, I'm surrounded by people that are affected by alcoholism and it's not so much that I have uh, problem drinkers because I've, I've pretty much distance myself from that um in type of environment but i have a lot of people who have been affected by other people's problem drinking either as a child growing up or through relationships um in their adult lives or with their own children and i qualify on all of those counts um 
I have four children and the eldest has been a heroin. She's 44. She's been a heroin addict for 25 years. And I don't know how she's still alive, to be honest. She seems to walk on water, but there's, there's grace there for some reason. Um, my youngest son is an alcoholic. Um, and he's, uh, 37 years old, but, um, I have a lot of people socially and in special interest areas that I mix with the public where I've formed friendships and acquaintances who definitely have drinking problems. So I I tend to be very cautious um, around active drinkers, but I'm mainly involved now with people that have been traumatised by the events throughout their life have having been involved with um, the problem drinker. And my mother, actually, I discovered to my horror later on that that was what was going on with my mother, that she also was a nips drinker and had a a severe uh, prescription medication addiction for decades that really affected her behaviour immensely. Um, The mother of my first son um, was a career drug, recreational drug user and was never without a joint or always had something in her pocket to, to steady herself with. Um, she loved brandy and inevitably OD'd on ecstasy in 1993 when my son was only 15 at the time. Um, but I, I, every relationship I've had has been with either someone who's got an active drinking um, lifestyle. They have to have a drink every day, if not during the day and they love to party, that type of drinker, or their personality is the good girl, but they're actually very repressed because they've they've got all this paranoid trauma from growing up in a family where alcohol was abusive and the insanity and chaos at some level. You know, it may not be wino paper bag insanity, but it may be just the culture of a family as a tribe can be quite... Um, negative long toxic long term yeah well Thanks. in my experience uh, one of the issues that come to people that that are growing that grow up in an alcoholic situation or, or indeed um just have anything uh any close relationship with an alcoholic is that um people affected tend to want to fix manage and control things and they may also struggle a lot with resentment uh, depression obsession um do any of that any of those uh play out in your life at all Oh, look, every word you mentioned is a major string to my bow in my current life and has been for decades. But I find that um, all obsession is driven by pain. doesn't matter what obsession it is, whether I'm obsessing on uh, buying something or I'm obsessing about someone else's behaviour that I don't appreciate or I'm just reacting badly, getting triggered by someone who's not reacting. They might be a perfectly good human being doing the right thing, but I'm, I'm getting triggered. So I have that obsessive nature. And when I look deeply at myself, there's pain. I'm running, there's some pain that I'm not looking at. And I find when I look at that pain, the obsession stops. So there's a high correlation in my behaviour, which I call, that is the, um, the family disease of alcoholism in my nervous system, although I'm not a problem drinker. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I'm not interested in alcohol or drugs. But my my behaviorisms have come from growing up affected by how other people behave that have got problems with, with drugs and alcohol. Mm. Yeah, um, 
what was the other thing you mentioned? There was some other good stuff. You... Uh, resentment, worry, depression, and obsession. Fixing, managing, yes, and controlling. Resent... <laughs> resentment is a big one. And I think also on that list of fix, manage, and control, I add the word protect. I have this overly eager, um, ref knee-jerk reflex to protect alcoholics, protect people that are damaged by the family disease. I, I want to protect them all. And, and that's not in my best interest. It's not healthy for me to do that. And when I have done that stuff, all I do is I ended up, I ended up emotionally bankrupt, financially bankrupt in many, many situations. And I've, I've learned to to open my heart and close my purse. I learned that in Al-Anon. Um, resentment is an interesting one because you can't have a resentment without self-pity. That's that's the core of whenever I'm in that cycle of resentment and I'm, I'm, you know, people get very caught up in I've got a right. I've got a right to this. I've got a right to argue with you. I've got a right to um, reject and, 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 and get angry about I. I, you know, this is unacceptable behaviour. Well, I've learned in Al-Anon, I've got no right to change anything. I've got no right to meddle with their disease. I've got no right um, to cross the line about what their soul journey is about. I need to stay in my own lane. I need to stay in my own hula hoop. I can only affect and change what's within the circumference of my own elbows. So when I get outside of that type of thinking... I get resentful because things, my expectations aren't being met. Um, my preferences aren't being adhered to. I can't, I'm not getting what I want. So then I start to arc up. I start to get critical and then I become the problem. It's not about their disease anymore. It's about my reaction. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, and what about, um, tell me some other, you, you said some really cool things there about staying in your own hula hoop and, uh, staying in your own lane. Uh, any other gems from Al-Anon that you'd like to share um, since you oh, that you've discovered? How long have you got? How I've long got, have you got? I've got um, I'll give you. I'll give you five <laughs> minutes to do that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just joking. I think any Al-Anon member who's been attending meetings for some time has got an absolute wellpool of amazing understanding and insights and experience. The experience of Al-Anon members is just breathtaking. And that's the big plus of Al-Anon is the fellowship of the people. The people are amazing. And and it's not because of their personalities. It's not because we're soulmates on the level of collecting hubcaps or guitars or surfboards. It's not about stuff. I find I meet people in Al-Anon and I absorb something about them and their recovery and their journey and their story. I absorb the wisdom of what they have learnt from what they've been through. And I find people do that to me as well. Like they, people will get something from me at times at meeting. And people I've only just met for the first time will often come up and start a very intense one-to-one -one conversation because there is this great um, interchange of not only ideas and insights, but confidence and detachment and just the beauty of celebration of, of life, of, of what is now good about my life, even though I'm, I'm a train wreck, I've got a train wreck family situation, there's a lot of difficult stuff still on a daily basis that I have to deal with. It's not going to get fixed. This is, this is a life, a hand of cards that um, 
is worth working with. It's a, it's a gift. It's really a gift, but it needs to be understood. It needs to be. Um, I I have I have had to learn how to unwrap the gift in order to benefit from what the gift of the family disease of alcoholism has brought as opportunity into my life. Um, Al-Anon's just, oh, it, it's just an amazing thing. And it's not black and white. You don't go there and have to uh, be anything. Um, you can take what you like and leave the rest. You can come in the meetings late, leave early. Um, it's been fantastic during COVID because we've got like over two years now on Zoom. So there's meetings 24-7 around the world. There's thousands and thousands of, of, of meetings around the world. Australia's got hundreds of meetings that can be accessed um, daily, seven days a week. Um, I, I'm just thriving in, in being able to go to these meetings. Yeah. Mm. Um, thanks for that, Ray. So I'll just say to the listeners out there, if there is anybody who does want to uh, get in touch with Al-Anon, uh, just Google Al-Anon uh, Victorian Southern Area and you'll get their um, list of meetings, etc. Um, so, um, Ray, it sounds to me like what you were describing there when you described the fellowship in an Al-Anon meeting and the openness and, and the honesty and the connection is that the sort of um, environment you'd been looking for all your life as somebody who grew up not being allowed to express feelings? Is that partly what's going on? Um, it certainly feels like it, but it does not look like it. Like I, I never walked into an Al-Anon room and thought, oh, here's the people I want to hang out with. They don't look, they don't look like my sort of people. Like I don't, I don't see uh, my peers in all of those um, criteria that any person's in individual personality identifies in certain people are, oh, here's, here's the in crowd, I want to be here. It's not like that. I find actually I often get a lot more from people that I don't identify with on a personality level, but I hear them speak about their, their pain, their journey, the difficulties, the things that conflict them, the ways they've dealt with it, what they learnt in the program, and that's the thing. See, we learn about we learn about the disease of alcoholism by attending meetings. We also learn about the program of Al-Anon, um, and we also learn about how to re-establish what I call um, quality me, capital letters, capital capital me. How to re-establish quality me time in my life. So that I, I come back to my home and the working environment that I have here um, and I can do quality me time things. And I'm doing it consciously now. I choose to do stuff that actually nourishes me, that fills my soul, fills that hole so that I don't have to feel empty. I don't have to feel resentful. Don't waste my time on being bitter. Um, and I'm not interested in payback. I'm not interested in criticism. I'm not interested in pursuing all the things that you do in a family disease of alcoholic behaviour and alcoholic thinking and all that competitive A versus B struggle that you have when you're around alcoholics, yeah. Mm. Um, so it's this, uh, so in the, the Fellowship of Al-Anon, it's the shared experience, the shared history, um, and it's also the fact that everyone's doing the same program, you know, following the same um, guidelines for how to, how to live a, a 
a happier, freer life. Can you talk a little bit about um, the, the 12 steps at all and how that, because the 12 steps in Al-Anon are from AA, how, how does that apply to uh, an Al-Anon member such as yourself? Yeah, um, well, uh, the 12 steps are a very interesting um, construction, if you like, and for people that are outside of 12-step um, experience, it seems like a very strange thing. It's it's a structure, but it's really unstructured in a lot of ways. And it's, it's how each and every individual finds their way to the program and how they take in what they hear at meetings. And so as we get um, into situations where we need to sort of apply deeper understanding from Al-Anon, the 12 steps become more significant. And, and step one is we admitted we were powerless over alcoholism and our lives had become unmanageable. So if your life has become unmanageable, it's usually because you haven't been able to accept your powerlessness. And that's a very profound statement, not coming from me, but to understand what that statement means, I've had to go through a lot of um, personal life experiences since coming to Al-Anon where I just couldn't cope. I just couldn't understand what, what do I do here? I don't understand what to do here. So each step I've acquired my own personal understanding. No one teaches you the steps. You do not, you do not learn the steps by learning them. They, they are like, they're like a ladder. Um, and it's like a, almost like a bridge that's made from a ladder where each rung of the steps is a bridge from the crap you're in, the mess you're in, the confusion you're in, the trauma you're in, what, whatever's going on in your uh, unlivable situation with alcoholism, the 12 steps become like a bridge between where you're, where you're at now and where you're at when you're at your best, when you're in touch with your higher power and you're feeling like a, a feeling of exuberant well-being. So these 12 steps have taught me that I can access the steps um, and fly by my the seat of my pants in difficult situations. And I often think, ah, oh, I've got to apply a step here. Which one is it? And I've, I work backwards in my head. I think, what step, which step is this? I'm, I'm in something. I know I'm in something. What am I dealing with? And, and I've got little, lots of little tools. Um, but the 12 steps have opened my head up is the answer. Mm. And you mentioned higher power, which is something that, um, some people balk at a little bit and uh, look for a solution where they, they don't have to deal with that side of things because they worry about the, the idea that it's, that it's a Christian God. Um, how, how do you understand that? Yeah, I, I'm definitely not religious and I am certainly not pious. In fact, I'm doing my best to not swear because I swear constantly. <laughs> um, I don't think a lot of people are very damaged because they've had a toxic religious upbringing and they have a big... Um, problem with the word God, higher power, anything mystical, esoteric is a problem. If it's not black and white, nuts and bolts, they don't want to know about it. I understand that. There's there's fear and trauma and practicality involved in survival based um, in, in that type of um, background. I definitely don't want to go to any churches or religions. Um, I find that the greatest thing you can say to someone is, look, you don't have to accept the sense of God. You just have to acknowledge that you are not God. Because in a sense, trying to control or protect, fix, manage 
an alcoholic or a situation where the family's distressed because of the alcoholic, trying to contain that drama, we actually become self-righteous. And then we start to, without thinking about it, we start to act and feel like we are God. I know the answer. I know how to fix this. I'll lock him out. I'll cut him. I'll cut the bank card, the visa card up. I'll take the keys. I'll pour the alcohol down the sink. We're acting like we're in charge and it's our job to fix the alcoholic. So taking in the God concept um, for me is more about good orderly direction, God, or great outdoors go and smell the roses go and go and watch the the animals look and look in the eyes of a newborn baby that that's the dimension but i have a background in meditation uh practices and i enjoy feeling um stillness i like the presence of stillness in nature i love i love being able to just have that quiet time i think i need quiet time on a regular basis for my health my mental and physical health so there's an integration there between my spirit, my soul, and my physical human um, nature. And, and being human is not a defective character either. So yeah, it's 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 kind of a um, it's a tough gig, but it's also very gentle. I think gentleness is a very key word of the compassion that I have been given um, when I go to Al-Anon meetings, I still experience a hell of a lot of gentleness amongst people in Al-Anon. Hmm. And that's profound because you don't get that anywhere. Everywhere else you've got to conform or perform. Um, you know, you've either got to shut up or speak up, assert yourself or back down, you know, watch yourself. It's not like that in Al-Anon. You can just relax and be yourself, take what you like and leave the rest. It's easy. It's very easy. Um, and, and it's better to just experiment. Like people, people often say, if you go to six meetings in the beginning, just go to six different meetings and just see whether this is for you or not. Because it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. It's not all things to all people. Um, and they're not God botherers. Forget the God bothering phobias. The end. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks. Yeah, you said, Alan, on uh, the program can be a bit of a tough gig, but I don't think it's as tough a gig as trying to be God on your own, trying to manage all the un- unmanageability and insanity that comes with um, dealing with um, addiction and, and the effects of it. Um, all right. Now, when we spoke uh, before, you said you had an interest in grief. Um, could you talk a little bit about the connection between um, grief and the family disease of alcoholism? Yeah. Um Grief is a very complicated subject, but it's also quite a profound experience for many people because often what we do is we attach ourselves to one another and we become enmeshed with the reality that exists within a particular family. And we learn that as children growing up. We get to feel very secure as a baby in certain aspects of our lives. And then as toddlers, small children, teenagers, young young adults in our 20s, we develop a culture of feeling um, safe and and comfortable and we recognise the repetition of behaviours and the security of everything being in the same place or I can go to McDonald's and buy this or I can go to to Kmart and buy that or I know there's food at the supermarket. So when when these structures um, get disrupted, like we've had with the floods, the fires and, and 
all the insanity that's happened in the world with COVID, for instance. Don't want to go on outside issues. But in the family, when someone dies, and particularly if it's an alcoholic, particularly if it's the the primary um, caregiver personality that has looked after the alcoholic, if that person dies, the level of grief can be devastating. The ripples of, of pain uh, and and feeling lost and disillusioned and just feeling disassociated that that area of grief um is even greater i think in a family where alcoholism has been a predisposing uh cause of a lot of buried post-traumatic stress so when someone dies it all just comes up and people go off and do the maddest things um when they're in grief and often often that is a turning point. It's it's a um, a defining moment of their lives. Um, after you often hear people say, "Oh, after my husband died, or after my daughter died, mm. or after my dog died, or when my mother died, or when this famous person, this rock star I was very attached to, died," it's a defining moment. Grief grief changes us, and yes. it steers us towards um, looking deeper into ourselves. I think. Okay, um, we've only got about a minute left, Ray, so I'd be really, uh, really like if you just spoke to the person out there that's thinking about, uh, that, that relates to what you've said, give, give one uh, idea that, from Alan on that could help them. Um, just be gentle with you. Look after you. Just, just do for yourself what makes you comfortable. Um, and don't worry about the alcoholic. The alcoholic has got, got a lot of stuff going for them that you can't see. And it's time you put all that energy that you put into the alcoholic, start putting it into yourself and learn how to do that and be re- become really good at putting your energy into yourself. The end. The end. Thank you very much, Ray. Um, that's all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Ray for sharing his experience with us. Thank you, Ray. Thanks, Anne. If you would like to find out more about Al-Anon family groups, then you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or go online at alanon.org.au. Now, Bill, um, next week you've got someone from Gamblers Anonymous, is that right? Uh, Stephanie, yep, Stephanie's going to be joining us. Okay, we've got Stephanie from Gamblers Anonymous to talk about recovery from gambling addiction. Um, coming up next in 3CR, we have Balamwa, the spirit of Wa hosted by Uncle Talgium Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. Um, and and uh, to take us out, we've got Mr Accidental by Melanie Horsnell. Uh, enjoy.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.